It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. My name is Natalie Bucknell and I'm joined today by my co-host Kira Rundle. How are you, Kira? Good, how are you? Very good, thank you. While technology is an important component in our transition to a zero carbon economy, the change won't happen without enormous investment. Today we're joined by Lane Crockett to gain some insight into how finance and investment can help or hinder this transition. Lane Crockett leads the renewables team at Impact Investment Group and has more than 25 years' experience in energy and renewables. He oversees transactions, asset development and management in that asset class of renewables. Lane was previously Executive General Manager of Pacific Hydro Australia, where he was responsible for a portfolio of more than 300 megawatts of operating wind and hydropower facilities, as well as development portfolio of solar, wind and geothermal projects. Hi Lane, thanks for joining us. Hi, it's nice to be here. So firstly Lane, perhaps give us a bit of background. Can you tell us a bit about the Impact Investment Group and what your role is with it? Sure. Uh, well, it's kind of in the name. Uh, the Impact Investment Group is an impact investor. Uh, that means we create investment opportunities uh, where there's a commercial return to our investors, but also uh, where there's a positive social and environmental benefit. So effectively, we, we put funds together. In our renewables division, we package up solar farms, for example, several solar farms from around the country. Uh, and we package those up into a fund that's in a manner that's attractive to investors. Okay, and what sort of returns do investors typically get on investments in this area? Sure, well, our, uh, they range for uh, other funds, but our funds we uh, have target return of 10% to investors. Okay, so in this pretty low interest rate environment, that sounds like a pretty nice return. Look, we believe it's an attractive investment and we certainly have no problem raising funds um, because people like the product. They, you know, they, they want to get behind the transition to clean energy in Australia, but also with a commercial return of 10% uh, and their money over 20 years, you know, that's, that's a great investment as well. Absolutely. So what attracted you to this job? Well, uh, firstly, because, you know, I can carry on, you know, being part of that uh, transition to to clean energy. It's kind of what I live for, I guess, in, in, in my career. But also, it's the type of business and the people who are in it. So everyone is absolutely committed to to doing good things in the world. And we believe that by channeling um, capital towards those good things, we can really move them along quickly. So have you found that there's been a big uptick in investment in renewables in recent years? Look, it's growing rapidly. I guess there's some fundamentals that have changed significantly for renewables. Um, you know, a number of years ago, it was such that, that the cost of renewables 
couldn't compete directly with other forms of power generation. So therefore, you had to have something about it that made it work, whether it was a subsidy or a, a government contract. These days, it's, it's different. So now that it is competitive, you can put together projects and they can fly on their own merit. And so that makes them highly investable. And, and so, yes, the amount of money going to renewables, both in Australia and, and worldwide at the moment, is, is really massive. Oh, that's really great to hear. So can you give us some figures around that? Like what, what sort of shifts have you seen? If the money's going into renewables now, where was it previously? What's, what has the shift been? Uh, well, I, I suppose, you know, five or ten years ago, everyone thought there was going to be a, a gas transition. So the money thought it was going to go into gas-fired power stations. Uh, but we've kind of moved past the gas transition, mainly in Australia, just because the price of gas is too high now that we're exporting gas overseas and it's linked to the international price. But it, it's kind of different all over the world, of course. Some countries of, like Germany, for example, have had um, programs in place for nearly two decades. And that's created an incentive for farmers and small investors to you know, invest in their own solar or wind farms that are what we would call quite small, but you've got many, many people doing it. Um, so that's created the environment for investment there. And in some countries have been really strong with policy and some haven't. China, you know, you'd be aware, has had massive investment in renewables, but they've kind of taken the path of not only doing the infrastructure, but building the um, production facilities and creating their own sort of export markets at the same time, which was really smart. So the types of investments that you're working in, how much are they influenced by global money movements and how much of it is just local national investment? So it's an interesting question. What we've seen is the investment environment improving, and we'll probably talk about this a bit more, in Australia over the last couple of years, we've had like an investment boom. That has attracted a lot of international capital and international players into Australia, whether you know, they're service companies, construction companies, or actual uh, overseas capital has been attracted into Australia. But the, the investment in Australia is driven by Australian policy or Australian markets, not by international markets. I suppose the only other factor you might consider is the fact that we do actually import most of the equipment that's, that's used in, in power stations in Australia. And so the cost of it coming in and things like our um, exchange rates do have quite an impact as well. Okay. And what about superannuation funds? Are they a big player in this, in terms of capital movement in this area? Yes, no. They do kind of struggle in this area. They tend to like to only invest in large chunks of capital, which means that they're only really looking at larger projects. They're also quite risk averse. So they like large projects that have like um, power purchase agreements. So a certainty of price over a long period from a buyer. Those those aren't necessarily, there aren't that many projects around like that, so it means the market for them is a lot smaller than the, the, the broader market for renewables in Australia. So they do kind of struggle. We actually were planning to come to this later, but power purchase agreements, are, are they playing much of a role investment decision making they seem to be a growing force in australia but is that just hype or is it 
Um, no, they do. Let's take the Victorian Renewable Energy Target, for example, where they auctioned a set of power purchase agreements. That, they, that was a very competitive process, and so investors love to win that type of PPA and invest in those type of projects. But they're you know, they're highly competitive, and so they're hard to win, and there aren't that many of them. But that is a, an important market. Then you maybe consider corporate PPAs, and there's a lot of talk about corporate PPAs, but the reality is they do take a long time to come to fruition. So I've been in processes with corporates for a couple of years, and then they've decided not to go forward with it. So you can imagine that's highly resource-intensive, for a business to be talking to a corporate for so long and and for it not to come to anywhere. So that's a tricky market. And then beyond that, you know, the the big utilities, you know, your Origin Energy, your Energy Australia and AGL, they have done some PPAs. They tend to be, you know, again, competitive. But all of these have a lower return. We talked before about the target 10% return for our product. At the moment, we can't give investors a product with PPAs with that return. It would have to be much lower. I'd like to shift now towards the role that public policy can play in the investment in renewables. So we saw that Labor announced their new energy plan with the target of reaching 50% renewables by 2030. I wanted to get your opinion on the feasibility of that number and just more broadly also what role policy plays on investment in renewables. Sure, yeah. No, look, and it was exciting to see the Labor Dart to put out some, well, some, some credible targets. Mm-hmm. So, so that's really good. The hard part is putting the policy behind to make it happen. So from what I've seen, and, and some of the reporting wasn't really that clear, was that there was some funding for the CFC, uh, it's $10 billion for the CFC, $5 billion for grid augmentation. Those are both, uh, I think, good things but without knowing too much detail and the target you know 50% by 2030 is a sensible target it's it's easily achieved so let's you know get that on the table straight away achieving significant targets in short time as can be done if you put the right policies into place so you know we've got we'll either get the resources or have the resources to do it there's plenty of capital around the world to make it happen there's plenty of projects out there waiting to be built there will you know there'll be some issues or or challenges around making sure that you can fit them into the grid and the grid is capable of moving around the energy that it needs to but but i didn't quite see in all of that what was the actual mechanism behind making that 50 percent happen so there didn't seem to be you know a cap and trade system or an emissions trading scheme or or a carbon pricing type or even a renewable certificate system behind it to make that work so i'm a little unsure yet what the driver is to make that happen. So from the perspective of the investment community, what would be credible mechanisms for for making these things happen quickly and effectively? It's funny, isn't it? We've kind of been through everything now, haven't we? (laughs) And and look, in my view, you know, the slate's been cleaned. Why don't we go back to actually the mechanism that was the best that works and will be efficient and and that to me is a carbon price not just across the electricity industry but broadly across the the economy it was very effective when it was in place if you okay. look at the charts of emissions 
they they dropped significantly during the carbon price and they've been rising ever since. And it, it was effective economically away. as well. Yeah, I mean, electricity prices are higher now than they were when the carbon price was in place. So the suggestion by what was then the Abbott government that they were going to really reduce carbon prices, they caused the opposite in the end. So we got higher prices and higher emissions. So, so yes, yeah, so policy, to come back mm-hmm. to your original question, Kira, <laughs> policy is really, really important, but it has to be sensible, evidence-based policy. So one policy that has driven a lot of investment is the renewable energy target. The end date for that is fast approaching. What, how is the investment community viewing you know, the, the completion of that and investment beyond that point? Okay, yes, so... To just to unpack that a little yes, bit, so you. it's a it's a target that that flatlines after twenty twenty through to twenty thirty. Um, so yes, you're right. It effectively ends at twenty twenty from an investor's point of view. We're actually already there. So what's needed to meet the target has either already been built or is in construction now. So there's not going to be a great deal more. So in the absence of any new policy or any new incentive. There's no mechanism calling in new investment apart from old coal-fired power stations closing. So that just creates incentive in the market to build more capacity, but otherwise there's no other incentives. Okay, so that process, you know, according to Bloomberg's recent announcements, the cost of wind and solar easily outcompetes the fossil fuel options for new builds. So it seems like in terms of old production closing down that that transition would naturally happen it's just a matter of the the pace then is that the fair characterization yeah yeah Yeah. so it'll happen that way it's not like anyone's going to build a new coal-fired power station even though this government might be attempting to try and make the impossible happen but but it's just too slow it's you know we're, we're a million miles off our paris targets If you've just joined us, listeners, we're talking with Lane Crockett from Impact Investment Group about investment in renewables. Lane, is there much variation between states as to which states are attractive to invest in? Yes, there's a lot of variation. So this Um, comes back to these policy issues again, does it? Or or is it other technical issues? There's policies and markets probably are the two main factors. So Victoria and Queensland have have state-based policies to try and drag through new renewables. So that will bring some new investment due to their specific policies. But then there's market parameters like South Australian market is quite different from um, the eastern seaboard markets just because it already has a lot of renewables. It's well over 50% renewables now. So it just acts in in a different way. It has different sort of time of day price signals and then if you for example western australia um you know that's that's a market very much on its own so that has different issues which relate back to the fact that it's 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 predominantly government owned infrastructure and retailer and um so it's 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 a very different market in in its own right and even same with Tasmania. I mean, it's dominated by, uh, again, a state-owned enterprises. So those those issues have risk about them that investors will consider, you know, as significant in relation to just the state-based policies as well. 
Um, so Impact Investment Group, where are your projects located around Australia? Yeah, so we, we started off, our first fund was a set of um, uh, solar farms with contracts, so like the um, ACT reverse auctions. So we've got some AC, two ACT solar farms. One of them's the Mount Majura solar farm, which is probably the most visited solar farm by international dignitaries in Australia. And that's just because it's so close to Canberra. <laughs> it's about 10 minutes drive from Parliament House. So we've had quite a number of, you know, heads of state come and, come and visit that solar farm. And oh. in fact, I went there last Sunday night for a, a da- interpretive dance performance. <laughs> In the solar farm, which is just fantastic. Um, then oh, is, we have, is there a YouTube clip of that? Uh, there will eventually be. Um, they did film it. So it's Australian Dance Party. It's the, um, the dance group, and they have filmed it, and uh, we should get something onto our website down the track. Um, uh, we've got one in WA, the Karatha Solar Farm, which is just behind the airport, just effectively um, powers the, the airport there. And then we've done some bigger solar farms for our second fund, which is Swan Hill Solar Farm in Victoria. And now we're building two in Queensland, in Chinchilla and, and near Yarranlee. So do you find that the climate of the location of the solar farm plays a key role in deciding whether or not solar is an appropriate form of renewable energy at that particular site? Yes. Uh, so, I mean, temperature does play a, a part, but in reality it's mostly about the solar resource. So how, how cloudy is it as a, as a solar resource? And um, obviously, you know, in Queensland and, and like the Karatha solar farm, wow, that just generates so consistently. If you look at the curve every day, it's just almost a perfect curve and it, it's almost a matter of excitement to just see a cloud. So, <laughs> so um, uh, yes, it, it does. So, And obviously the further south you come or if you become more coastal, it gets cloudier and so that affects the um, production from, from a solar farm quite considerably. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking a lot about the, the upside of uh, investment in renewables and and the returns and the great activities with transition, but there's also risks and obstacles in the whole process. What what are some of the main ones that you have to factor in? I guess the first part of, of investing is trying to determine whether you as as where you're getting your capital from and do you need a PPA or not. So many investors say I've got to have a PPA, otherwise I'm just not going to invest. Uh, we take a different view because we think there's real opportunity in the market at the moment. So we've got developing what you call merchant solar farms. So they're solar farms that will literally just receive income from the from the market of the day. And and we think that's that's a good investment and so do our investors. So that's going well. But I guess so there's that part of it is once you get past that and you know what you're doing, then the risks become more sort of delivery and technical. One of the big things that, that's going on at the moment is that because there's been a lot of new projects coming on to the national electricity market and the grid, we've found that the market operator has really adjusted the way they're accepting projects. Um, and that has caused some some real issues. So that connection to the grid is now probably the biggest risk to a to a project development of anything else. So um, is is that a risk that can be shored up at 
you know, in the early stages of the project? You can de-risk it to a certain extent. So what kind of happens is you have to agree a generator performance standard uh, with the network service provider, whether it's transmission or distribution, depending on what level you're connecting into. But that also gets approved by the uh, Australian Energy Market Operator. And so historically that was, you did that and then you built your project and then you started to generate as soon as you were ready and then you did the testing to prove that your plant is effectively generating in the same way as your generator performance standards says you will. And there's a kind of dynamic model that you're looking to see whether it's doing what the model says it should do. Uh, And if it doesn't, then you have an issue that you have to deal with. But the market operator has become very conservative. So now you go through various phases where you're allowed to generate for a couple of days at you know 10% of your capacity and then you have to come off and then everyone looks at the data and then you're allowed to go up to like 50% for a couple of days and then you come off and everyone looks at the data and then it gets approved and then only you're allowed to generate at full capacity for a little while and then you come off. And, and so what it's meant is that... that time it takes to get connected once the farm is built is almost as long as the time it takes to build the plant. Mm. Which is what sort of time frame? Well, six months. Right. So it's wow. an extraordinary conservative level of time connecting what are sometimes quite small plants. So this is a real issue that's, that's arisen in the market. Um, it's happened sort of on the fly. So when you started building your project, you had no idea that they were going to move to that point. And by the time you've sort of built it, they've now decided that you have to go through all these different gates. This is actually one of the, I believe, one of the causes why we've, one of the largest Australian contractors has recently become insolvent. So RCR Tomlinson went into administration. It's a large listed construction company. It's built the most solar farms in Australia. In fact, it had five solar farms under construction when it went into administration. So it's a huge issue mm, for the it's a industry. Big impact, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and I think you know it's where the the yeah. I think this. Uh, I'll just give the unplugged view here. <laughs> okay, listeners, you heard it here. <laughs> <laughs> get, get ready. Is that you know the the, the politicians have come out and politicised this industry, and so talking about oh the unreliable unreliability of renewables. And really played this up where it's not, you know, renewables are variable, but they're not unreliable. And so what it's meant is that the the national market operator has become really conservative, conservative to the point where it's starting to damage the industry. So how can how can these issues be overcome? What what's the the way forward? Well. Um, depoliticizing it would be great, but um, how realistic mm. that is, I don't know. It's not happening. Yeah. Uh, not, not at the moment. So, look, it's it's just trying to get cool heads into the room and, and getting people to sit down and, and go through it and make sure you have the right sort of technical people to get processes in place that are not overly conservative and damaging to the industry but do what needs to be done to meet the challenges of of um, integrating the, the grid with, you know, a large number of, of renewable energy projects, which is inevitable. I mean, that's the way it's going to happen. The grid no longer just shifts energy from large generators through to consumers. It's just it's now shifting it around between multiple generators. Okay, and I guess, you know, flagging well in advance the industry, any of these kind of changes 
in standards and expectations. Absolutely, so yeah. yeah. Doing things on the fly is, is really damaging. So just as quickly as these new regulations came about, do you think that they can be reversed to go back to the old system? Well, look, they're not even regulations. Mm. They're just um, practices almost okay. that are put in place. It's not like there's been a lot of rule changes uh, in the system that, you know, rule changes take a long time to go through because they they have a process where you, you have to consult with, you know, the entire industry. But these are where the market operator has certain powers um, and can just literally force you into doing things. So it's not hard to roll back, but I'm not saying that we should completely roll it back, but let's get somewhere in the sensible middle um, that ensures that there's great integrity with the connection, but doesn't you know take the industry or some industry players to the wall in the mm. process. Yeah. So you spend a fair bit of time analysing pricing and forecasting. Can you gaze into your crystal ball and, and tell us what you think is going to be happening with electricity pricing in the coming five to ten years with all these changes coming through yep so the um so we do we have uh, we rely on independent forecasters but yes we do <laughs> pour over them and we understand all the inputs and and what's going on so there's a few structural things that have happened in the market that cause the price to be higher than it used to be in the past so obviously some uh, uh coal old coal-fired power stations closing uh, lifts the price in the market. That's what's supposed to happen because it creates new opportunity or new incentives in the market for new investors to come in and fill the gap. The gas price uh, in Australia, I mentioned you know, right at the beginning there, is um, two to three times its original price. So that's had quite an effect as so well. So what about looking forward? What are we... So, so looking forward, prices are never going to be back it was <laughs> to where they used to be. Um, but the, the, the forecasts say that they will come down and then they'll start to go up again. But in reality, um, whilst we have a minister for bringing energy prices down, um, that's not what's happening. The forward prices are going up, and that's because of the uncertainty that's being created by not having a policy for dealing with, with emissions in the future. So the industry knows that it needs to invest in the future, but it doesn't know it how fast and it doesn't know um, what the emissions caps what the are. Will be. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time today, Lane. We, we've run out of um, program time. <laughs> um, where can our listeners find out more? Uh, well, the Impact Investment Group is impact-group.com.au. Terrific. Okay, thank you. We've been speaking to Lane Crockett from Impact Investment Group. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions Think Tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, then you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on Podcasts. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.